Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So, today God will be speaking to us from John 19, 28 through 30, 38 through 42, 20, 11 through 18. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why, oh wait, sorry, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, as Ian makes his way up here, I thought I'd just do a quick introduction. Ian's a good friend, and he's uh, the Associate Director of Justice and Neighborhood at Redeemer East Side. A friend that we've known here at Redeemer East Harlem since we started, a good friend of mine from back in the day. I think our first introduction was on Governor's Island playing baseball together, which was a lot of fun, where I learned that Ian, unfortunately, is a San Francisco Giants fan, <laughs> uh, but we'll forgive him for that. Uh, but Ian is a good friend, so he's going to come and deliver uh, the word based on uh, the text that was just read to us today. So let's give Ian a warm w- welcome uh, this morning. So come on up. <laughs> Well, uh, he outed me as a San Francisco Giants fan. I may or may not be making a baseball reference in this sermon, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, but it's so nice to be here, everyone. It's so nice. I think I was here the first or second uh, sermon of this sermon series, and so it's great to be here to close it out with you, the sermon series on public faith. Uh, and I was actually listening this week to a Marvin Gaye song, Holy, Holy, not Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty, uh, but it was kind of close uh, because in this song, he's 
as much of Marvin Gaye's career is about is wrestling with a lot of the evil and the suffering that's going on in our world and wrestling with uh, a lot of that, how to approach it, how to deal with it. Uh, and one of the things he says in the song, Holy Holy, is that we need to pay attention to the word, the Bible, that, that Jesus gave us to be able to deal with suffering while we wait until he returns. And so I think that's perfectly in line with not just our text before us today, but the sermon series as a whole. And so specifically with this text before us, I want to have one big takeaway for us today. So our one big takeaway is kind of like the Marvin Gaye song, when life is hard, that we need to make sure that we don't miss Jesus's finished work. When life is hard, we can't miss Jesus's finished work. And so I think through the three different passages we have today that kind of gives us three steps of an argument that John's gospel is building for us, we can think of it as three points or three movements. So the first is the king's death. Second is the king's burial. And finally, the king's return. So in the king's death, we're going to see the power of the love of God and how that changes not just how uh, God sees us, but how we should be living our lives because of uh, the love of God. In the king's burial, we'll see the power that comes from the boldness that Christ gives us because of the love of God. And finally, in the king's return, we're going to look at because of that love and because of that boldness, what does this power look like because of the restoration of Jesus Christ, because of the incarnate word of God. Okay? So the king's death, the king's burial, and the king's return. In the first part of our passage today, we have to make sure that we have our context for what has been going on in this Gospel of John. Uh, in the Gospel of John, one of his main goals, if not the main goal, is to prove to the readers that Jesus is God. That Jesus is not just a really nice guy, but actually divine. And not, just, uh, and not just a special God, like in the Greek and Roman cultures of the times, there are lots of different gods, but actually the God, the only God who's worthy of praise, who, as he says in the very beginning, was with God and was God, and who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so we have to keep, keep in mind, importantly, what is the identity of Jesus that uh, John is trying to argue, and through him, what God is trying to tell us. So... We have to keep that in mind as we come to chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. So after Jesus has been already betrayed by his friends, he's been con condemned also by the Jewish leaders who have forsaken allegiance to God the Father, forsaken allegiance to the God of the Bible, and he's been tortured by the Roman government. Here we find Jesus at the end of his life. Right before this section, in fact, he also commanded one of his disciples to take care of his mother. So one of his last acts is to take care of his family. And here we find Jesus, who knows the end is upon him. So knowing he is about to die and knowing he is about to uh, fulfill the promises of Scripture, he actually acknowledges his humanness. We see in verse 28, we see that he says, I'm thirsty. And so he's given sour wine and then acknowledges the cosmic nature of his death by saying it is finished and then dies in verse 30. So we have, again, here the humanness and also the divineness of Jesus here at the end of his life. So what does that mean? Uh, what is finished that we might be in danger of missing? When we go back to the book of Genesis, we see that Christ is finishing the work that God has set in motion since the beginning of 
time. In Genesis 3, man betrays God by trying to take wisdom for their own. And because they don't trust God's way of wisdom, they have to be uh, cast out of the garden because of the ripple effect that sin and evil has. But before, right before they're sent out, God promises that he will send someone to save the world from this virus of sin and that that savior would also be wounded in the process. And so here on the cross, we see God fulfilling that promise, even though it cost him the life of his son. And so the reason why Jesus's work on the cross changes our life as Christians is because it takes away a lot of hurdles that we put up ourselves, especially when we consider our faith as public, our faith in front of others. Because we cannot say that God doesn't love us, if that's a hurdle we put in front of us. We can't say God doesn't love us because the cross shows he cares for us. We also can't say that our flaws are too much, uh, that we're uh, damaged goods, and so therefore we can't work for God's kingdom because the cross is historical proof of God's forgiveness. We also can't say that we can't live a life of public faith because it makes us uncomfortable. And this is something that really rubs up against uh, what the logic of the world, we'll call it for today, because Jesus not only shows us what real love is from him, it's not just the love of God, he is showing us what following him and loving like him looks like. For example, when we have, we all have passions and desires, and when we feel uh, it kind of like a fire trying to get us to do something, we have to make a decision, will we act on it or not? Will we let this passion or desire move us or not? And in order to know if this passion or desire is healthy or not, because there are some passions that are good, despite what Abe thinks, I'm a Giants fan, and that's a great passion, I think. But how do we know if it's healthy or not? That's why God's given us his word, and also the Holy Spirit, and also the community, to be able to discern what is wise or not, what is actually loving to ourselves and to others. And we need to make sure that one standard we don't use when we're thinking about how we use our passions or how we uh, allow it to, to shape us or move us, we can't say as a tool that we have to follow our personal uh, or our temporary happiness. And what I mean by temporary happiness, at least as an ultimate tool that we use to discern whether we should act or not, and I don't mean temporary happiness as in the next few minutes or the next few days, but even our lives as a whole, is because of the cross. We know we can't use this because of the cross, and we'll see what, what I mean on a second. On the cross, Jesus was putting to shame all the other philosophies of the world, especially the ones like the voices we hear today that say that personal desire should be a justifying factor for our lifestyle or our choices. And so what I mean by this is that if you listen closely to the narratives of the world, the voices across the country, whether politically liberal or politically conservative, you'll see that they actually use the existence of a desire to justify the use or even the pursuit of it. And I know that we've all heard the sentence in a bunch of different contexts that it's my fill in the blank, therefore I should be able to use it as I want. And I'm not saying autonomy is bad. I'm not saying that freedom or personal choice is bad. But the logic of today's world says that the existence of autonomy, the existence of the ability to choose, has not just become a means or something that we should protect sometimes, but it's actually, actually a goal and the justification 
for that goal. For instance, if you were to get a million dollars or a raise on your paycheck, that most financial advisors would say that you should either invest it or maybe treat yourself. If you look at a lot of the ads through Instagram or just anywhere in New York City, you are told that you should do something because you deserve it. But if, uh, if we actually follow that to its logical conclusion, then Jesus would not have been able to do that if he had followed the logic of the world. Because if Jesus had used the logic of I need to pursue my temporary happiness as a justification for all of my actions, then he would have taken himself off of the cross. In fact, he probably would not even have gone up on the cross if that was a determining factor for how he should love himself or even love others. If he had chosen his own personal passions and temporary happiness, instead of submission to the Father, then we would have to face the full consequence of our sin. And that's why Christians can't and shouldn't live in shame because of the cross, but rather be able to confess out of joy that Jesus has acted so unfairly, sacrificed his temporary happiness so much to make sure that our sins could be forgiven. It's a life not of shame, but of joy. And that's why Christians are called to a radical, beautiful use of their time, their money, their bodies, their relationships, and their entire lives. And it's not a sufferings for suffering's sake. We'll see later on in this passage how you, that suffering for suffering's sake is not something that we should pursue, but rather a pursuit of something only possible in light of and because of our king finishing the work of dying on the cross for our sins. We can and are able to give up things that bring us temporary happiness for eternal glory because Jesus has given us historical proof that the way of love is in sacrificial submission to our God. And some of you might be asking the question, well, I seem to be doing things or my friends seem to be doing things that uh, seem to give them temporary happiness. They don't, they're not living in guilt and shame. They're, they're doing these things that the Bible says we should avoid because uh, they hurt ourselves and others. But I want to encourage you that one, uh, in 1 Peter, we're told that Jesus dies for our sins, both to forgive our sins, but also his dying and his sacrifice is actually a model for us as Christians to, so we can live the way of life and not death. But also, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, some people, when they pursue these things, they do get temporary happiness. In some ways, they think they are actually happy, and it brings them some sort of pleasure. But we have to make a decision of if we are willing to deny the cross to pursue those temporary things, or willing to pursue those temporary things so we can pursue the eternal love and glory of Jesus. Jesus on the cross is modeling for us how to love others eternally beyond our own desires and our own selves. And so the, the next natural que question, if we accept this love of God that he's offering for us, the question is, what does it look like or what can it look like? You might be asking, does this sacrifice mean that you need to commit your life to ministry or preach sermons or anything like that? And, you know, for some of you, that may be the case. But John shows us next what it may look like in the life of an everyday believer emboldened by the gospel. 
What does the logic of Christ's love enable people to be able to do? So that brings us to our next point, which is the king's burial. In the king's burial, God shows us how following Jesus gives us boldness when facing those who hate us. If you look at verse 38 and below, we see Joseph of Arimathea, who's a disciple of Jesus, gets Jesus' body from Pilate, and then in verse 39, is joined by this guy named Nicodemus to bury Jesus' body. And it says the text tells us that they follow customary burial traditions of Jewish people and put him in a fresh tomb in a nearby garden by the end of verse 40. And there are a few things here that show us how these two followers model for us the boldness that comes from Christ. If you look closely, these two men expose themselves to ridicule and persecution because of their public faith. If you look at verse 38, Joseph is clearly afraid of this pushback from fellow Jewish leaders, but he still asks for Jesus' body. And these, uh, the, the, the council that he was a part of was the council that actually uh, condemned Jesus to death. So they would have noticed if he would have gone to the governor of the times and asked for the body of this Jesus. It would not have just flown under the radar. By going to Pilate, the author is trying to show us that even though he was in, it was in secret before, Joseph is now exposing himself and risking his social status. And notice, he's not giving, at least the text doesn't tell us, he gives any speech to the Jewish leaders. He doesn't go into the market and, and proclaim anything. Not that that would have been bad, but he doesn't do that. All we're told is that at first he was in secret, but now he's exposing himself. And by naturally exposing himself, he's doing this because he's just honoring the king. He's treating Jesus as the king that he is, and that naturally for Joseph means risking what he has, what, what maybe the world would say you need to protect. And when we go to Nicodemus, we see the same thing. Nicodemus, uh, as uh, we're supposed to know that this is the Nicodemus from chapter 3, because the author tells us in verse 39 that he came at night. This was the man who said, uh, who Jesus told, you need to be born again to be a follower of Jesus. And so what, but, but what the author is trying to do, he could have said the, the Nicodemus who thought, you know, who didn't realize he needed to be born again. I thought that that was kind of weird to be born again. But the author says that this is the Nicodemus who came at night under cover of darkness. But now, Nicodemus was also high up with the Jewish leaders at the time. But now Nicodemus, instead of coming at night, he exposes himself again. And so the author, by giving us these two people, is showing two people who formerly, in some ways, their faith was hidden but just by treating Jesus as king, they are brought into the light. And we know that they're treating Jesus as a king, in a kingly way because of the materials that they use, myrrh and aloe. And we, if we also look to how these types of things were used earlier in earlier parts of the Bible, Kings Asa and King David, great kings of ancient Israel, were also buried this way. And so they're recognizing what the rest of their council that claim to be followers of the Bible, those powerful people, they didn't recognize Jesus as king, but these people are. And so in this section, Joseph and Nicodemus sacrifice their time, their wealth, and their social status to honor their king in this burial. 
And something else to keep in mind that we'll look back to later is they still honor the Sabbath. They don't compromise on that. They work hard to do this honoring and then they honor their Sabbath rest as also, uh, Sabbath rest also. And that's something that John and other parts of uh, this section keeps on saying, the day of preparation, the Passover, the Sabbath, the day of rest is approaching. So keep that in mind. But when you think of Joseph and Nicodemus, what does that mean for us? It means as followers of Christ, we have this same boldness. If we follow Jesus as king, we have that boldness right now. And that's why if you read through the Apostle Paul's letters and the rest of scripture, he keeps telling the Christians to stop living as if they were dead. That to live without the boldness as a Christian is actually to live against the reality of your new identity in Christ. You already have the boldness to do the things that sound crazy to the logic of the world. You have the boldness to give away your money instead of trying to get, invest in, and improve your own wealth. You are able to raise your kids to honor the biological sex that God give them and also to advocate for your marginalized neighbor. You already have the boldness to be able to risk your social status because of what is Christ has done for you. And that doesn't mean that you should expose yourself unwisely. There's entire books of the Bible that talk about the importance of wisdom and not being, uh, being so quick to act that it is foolish. But you should regularly ask yourself, are you avoiding the risk and consequences that come with obedience to Christ? Are you trying to hold on and protect the things that make you comfortable in contradiction to the promises of the King of creation? And I will not lie to you, this is a hard and difficult call. And it means different things for each one of us, uh, but that's why you have wonderful pastors and elders here to help guide you through all of those difficult conversations that uh, unfortunately I can't have with you today. Um, but that's something that you are supposed to do as a Christian. You're supposed to process these things with your elders and your leaders and your community. And it's also, it's your pastor's job and your elder's job to be able to talk to these things with you, but also do that with grace and with truth. And so if Abe does something, you can talk to me and, you know, we'll see. Not that he will. Anyways, uh, so uh, all that to say is we can trust the grace and truth that Jesus is giving us. We can trust the source of J Joseph and Nicodemus's boldness because they knew what God is trying to tell us through this text today. They knew that the God who knows you also loves you. And what they're living out is that they don't have to be bold to prove their boldness. They have boldness because of what Jesus just did for them and what we have evidence of also through Scripture. You already have the boldness for, from Christ, and so God is telling us to act on it. So this means so far that God not only loves us, but has a boldness that is ready for us to tap into, especially through the difficulty of life. It means we can't miss the boldness we have when we follow Jesus, but it's also better than just that. We don't just know that God loves us. We don't just know that we, that we can be bold people because we're Christians, but we know through this scripture that the boldness and faithfulness is rewarded and secure through the difficulties of life because of the last part of scripture for us today. And that's when we talk about the king's 
return. In the king's return, we move on to chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, and we'll see how Christ's suffering and death is not just a promise that our sins are forgiven, but that our suffering and death now for his glory is also not the end of the story. Right before this, the disciples, Peter and John, uh, had saw the tomb, but then they returned back to their home, leaving Mary behind. And so we find her in verse 11 crying. She looks into the tomb. She sees the angels. She even sees Jesus, but she doesn't realize it at first. She doesn't know what's going on. And it's only when Jesus calls her name in verse 16 that she sees her risen teacher. Jesus then sends her out to tell the disciples the good news in verse 18. And this passage doesn't just show us the power of God, the power that, to show us proof that he has power over death. It also shows us that he's actually calling us and asking us to join in on the cosmic work he is doing. Remember, if you look back to the, the first page of the gospel that we talked about earlier, in the gospel of John, Jesus is trying to tell us that Jesus is the same God who created the universe. And so we can't ignore how, this, how the passages we've been looking at today also look a lot like the beginning of the narrative of, the, of uh, creation itself. If you look back to Genesis 1 through 3, 3, we'll see a lot of comparisons. In Genesis, God creates the universe. He creates life out of nothing, and he says it's good. It's done. And then what happens in our first part of Scripture today? Jesus gives us life through his death and then says, it is finished. And then back in Genesis, after God creates the world, he rests. He rests and then establishes Sabbath day. And that's the very day that Jesus is laid in the tomb. And finally, in Genesis 2, where does he place the man? Where does he place Adam after he raises him and creates him from the dust? He places him in a garden. And so where does Jesus meet Mary after the father raises him from the dead? He places him in a garden. And so the, the whole themes of what John has been trying to prove culminate here because in the Eden garden, man betrayed God. But in this resurrection garden, God fulfills his promise that he had returned to make right. The divine king of Genesis is the same divine king here in the Gospel of John. But where we compare and contrast these, these uh, passages of Scripture, we have to both look at what's similar, but also what is different. And there's one difference that I want to point out that I think is re- relevant for today. When Adam and Eve went out of the garden, their state was in guilt and shame because they had betrayed their God. Their God who had already given them abundance, given them everything, they betrayed. And so they they went out because they had to face the consequences of their sin and their participation in evil. But now, when Mary realizes that Jesus is who he always said he was, Jesus sends her out to spread the good news of the resurrection. Instead of hearing God's word and disobeying it and Adam and Eve subsequently being cast out, Mary hears the words of Jesus, God's incarnate word, and is sent out. 
Adam and Eve were declared good by God, but corrupted themselves. And some of you might know that Mary used to be demon-possessed. She used to be, as society pictured her, corrupted and defiled. So this formerly demon-possessed woman is redeemed by Christ and made a key agent to spread the good news of the king. And so it's important to ask, what does this mean for us? When we ask that question, we can't miss the message that Jesus is doing when he sends out Mary. The same God who created the cosmos, the same God who walked amongst the grass in the garden is calling us to himself, and in doing so calls us to be sent out and to go out. When we, are, when we, when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we also are not cast out but sent out instead with the power, boldness, and love of our Savior. And so that means that for those of us who think that our checkered past is uh, too much to overcome, we can look at Mary and see that Jesus will work through us if we open our eyes and see what God is trying to do. And so if you have been divorced, or if you've had an abortion, or if you are just, maybe you're just a jerk in college. <laughs> some of you are laughing, so some of you, you know, talk about that later. But that means that God can and still and will use you in your public faith, in your everyday life. Jesus has given us everything we need. And so as we close, I want to uh, just point out something about this crying that Mary does before she realizes that, Je that Jesus is not just the gardener, but Jesus himself. Why does John include this moment? Because he can't be saying in that moment that crying is good because Mary's crying about something that isn't true. She thinks that the, the body has been stolen, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we can't be, he can't be saying that crying is bad because there are entire books of the Bible that just focus on lament and crying about the evil and death in this world. So what John is saying and what the problem that he's pointing out is that Mary is crying from a place that doesn't align with what's true. She's focused on uh, her worst fear and so much so she's missing the miracle that's right in front of her. And so the last illustration today, as I promised at the beginning, I uh, began the sermon series with a baseball illustration, so I'm going to end with a baseball illustration as well. So some of you may have seen the, the movie from 2011. It's called Moneyball. Yes, that, that three of you who have seen Moneyball with Brad Pitt, yeah, you're like, yeah, this guy's good. Uh, but that's a movie starring Brad Pitt and also has Jonah Hill and a lot of great people in it. But that's about uh, this guy named Billy Bean, who's the general manager of the 2002 Oakland A's. And the Oakland A's, just like today, don't have any money or any resources whatsoever. But it's his job to still find a way to win. So year after year, he tries and he tries and he tries, and I won't spoil it, but it's really, really tough. And so at the end of the movie, we get a scene between uh, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, and Pete, played by Jonah Hill. And Pete's trying to encourage Billy after all these years of trying to win. And to do so, he shows the video of like some no-name baseball player in their minor league system. And he talks about how the, this player's worst fear is getting a hit, running around first base, and then uh, face planting on the ground. That's this player's worst fear. So Pete loads up the video, shows Billy Bean, and the guy gets a hit, he smacks the ball, and he tries, he tries to go for it, he tries to go around first base, and that he slips, and he falls, and he face plants. And so his worst fears have come true, and so he's on the ground, he's crawling back to first base, 
Uh, he's devastated. He thinks he's let his team down. But what Pete tells us is that his disappointment is misplaced. Because Pete tells us that, that player hit a home run and he didn't even realize it. He was so focused on not making the wrong decision that he didn't realize that, in a way, the miracle that had just happened. So this player looks up and uh, he starts going around the bases, even the people he's playing against, you know, give him baseball, baseball high fives, uh, because it's just a fun, it's a fun, joyous scene. And so Billy Bean just can only say, ah, how could you not be romantic about baseball? And so what I'm trying to tell you is you need to be romantic about baseball to be a Christian. I mean, if you did, it'd be nice. But the point of this is that when Mary was crying as she looked into the tomb, she was crying because she only saw her worst fear. She was captivated by the dread that Jesus was dead and that his body had been stolen. And so when she saw the empty tomb and even the angels and even Jesus himself, all she could focus on was her worst fear. But she didn't, and that's what her crying was about. But what she needed to do was hear her name called by Jesus and realize that Jesus, the God of creation, had fulfilled the promises from the beginning of creation, and she hadn't even realized it. And so, brothers and sisters, life is hard, and public faith in Jesus is often grueling and confusing, often when it's when you're the most faithful to Jesus that it's the hardest. But in the midst of that, don't make the biggest mistake. Don't miss the reality and the miracle of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus wants to hear how you are suffering, but don't, don't think that that's all that your life is about. Don't forget that Jesus has promised to return and reward your faithful suffering for his glory and righteousness. So realize that this God you serve, when you go out in your public faith, who transforms your relationships, is the one who loves you and sends you out in love. So with that, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that the work to forgive our sin is finished. We thank you that we live in light of the beauty of the cross and that we have the historical proof of your resurrection to encourage us that death cannot overpower good even when we ourselves uh, have our flaws or when we die. We thank you that your resurrection proves that when we suffer for righteousness, it has eternal ramifications. So we ask you, Lord, to send us out now to love you with a faith that is not public because we, are trying to, we ourselves are trying to captivate others, but because you use us to love others even when life is hard. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.